advantage or in Brens. Uh, sorry, we can't answer you at the moment. If I told you why, you wouldn't believe me. But anyway, um, you know how to do after the tone. Say a few words if you wish. Bye for now. Hi, Dad. Hi, Mom. It's Sue here. I just wanted to let you know that I'm coming down for the weekend. Um, my train gets into Mill Street at 6.05. And um, I'm really looking forward to spending a bit of time together. See you guys then. You get me five made first. And then we'd... Are you smoking many now, Dad? Uh, about five, four, five... It depends on what kind of a day I have it. I don't smoke inside anymore now. I come out here every time I want to fight. I'm not smoking with Brinny. So that Brinny wouldn't have the, the passive smoking or whatever they call it. So anyway, if we go back, I, do you intend to go back and start when I was uh, 17? And then... Um, you know, you wouldn't be taking much notice of things going on around you in the family, and I was the youngest. And came home one night, and everybody, Bam had very sad face, and there was terrible quietness in the house. And they said, your dad has been to the doctor, and he's he's been very sick. And um, I knew he had complained of um, swollen glands in his neck, and he'd gone to the doctor, and they said, it's very... Um, unusual but you have glandular trouble uh, you have glandular trouble and we'll look after it so they gave him some tablets and six months after the glands were still swollen and he went to another doctor and the other doctor said oh my god Mr. Denny why didn't you come to us he said you've left time go by I'm sending you off to Dublin he said they took some samples or something and he said you have cancer of the throat why didn't you come? And Dad said, I did come, and I was being treated for swollen glands. But anyway, all I heard was a few weeks went by, and the bro my brothers, Paddy and Tommy and Harry, were making arrangements, and, and Mam, Mag, and they decided he'd have to go to Hume Street and stay in. That time you went up there for the very crude radiation, uh, chemotherapy, and... Um, it was a very crude, it was only the beginning of it, to burn your skin and everything. So they said he would have to stay for so many weeks, it was six weeks, eight weeks, and um, he'd have to book in, they close the doors at nine, but he had his treatment at ten in the morning, and then you go away, and you come back at four in the afternoon, and you got another little dose, and then you went away and came back at nine, and the doors were locked, no visitors, no one. So they decided, they decided, they arranged with Fitzgeralds where I was doing my apprenticeship, that I get off from there, and they would give me my wages and that I go to Dublin, stay in Diggs, out in Walkenstone, and I would go in on the bus in the mornings, pick up that after the breakfast, and we'd go off for the day to Phoenix Park, or we'd go to town, and we'd go in for our lunch to Mooney's, and we'd spend the day like that, and... Um, then I get him back for this four o'clock one, and then we come out, we go round the corner to O'Donoghue's Bar and Hotel off Hume Street. That's where the hospital was. And um, we used to go in there and I'd buy him a pint and I'd have a shandy. Uh, 
That's when I said I'd have lemonade, and he laughed at me, and he brought me down a pint, and he said, go away, I know you're drinking for for a few years, but he said, don't be silly, drink that. And uh, I'd have one pint, and Dad would have one or two. And then I'd see him off and see him into bed, and I'd leave nine o'clock. And I was going up to shop to buy this orange ice lolly that was called a Patsy Pop. You couldn't get them in England, and I was here on holiday. And I like them, and they cost two pence. That would be old, old pence, D. The LSD, they'd be the D of the LSD. And I bought it, and I opened it, and I was coming back to the house. And Joe was going to the shop. And as he came up towards me, he asked me, he said, can I have a lick of that lolly? And... uh, I think he got a bit of a surprise because I said, you can. And I held it out to him. And Was he messing, like? I think he was probably messing. <laughs> I gave it to him anyway. <laughs> Whether he was messing or not, he did. So then we just started talking. And he asked me, would I like to go out the following night to some place? I didn't even know any of the places around here then. Because there was um, a band playing. It was the time of the show bands and to listen to the show band. And I said, you'll have to ask my mother. Mum had come with me on holiday as well. So he did. And we went out the next night. And that was the start of it. And that was, what, uh, over 50 years ago. That was 51. 1955. 1955. What are you having for lunch? Uh, tapioca. Frogs, oh. frogs, brawn. Yuck. I love it. With nutmeg and egg. Oh my god. She spoils you, Ger. Oh yeah, rotten. Do you make him anything he wants to eat? Yes. Anything. What and he what he doesn't want to eat as well. <laughs> it's a big battle, isn't it, to get the food into him? Tis, tis, tis. He just doesn't have the appetite anymore. That's he... a noisy microwave, isn't it? Tis. No, I have the appetite. Yeah, he has the appetite, no room. So how do you try to tempt him? Just give him nice things, nice things that he just can't resist. And he jam, (laughs) make jam tarts and he jams them in. (laughs) Yeah. And what else does he like? Apple tart, jam tart, all milk puddings, all milk puddings. My introduction to cancer with Dad was sort of... In the third party, for like I was, didn't put when it, when the word was said to myself. When was that? Sorry, just interrupt you for a second. <coughs> when did he tell you you had cancer, and what were the circumstances of that? Your age, roughly, when was that? It was about forty-seven, and I used to do a lot of driving on my breakdowns, and I found that I was getting tired a lot sooner than I would normally walk till it was dark and maybe drive hundred miles home. I could go up to Tipperary. I could go off into the Inns of Kerry on breakdowns. But I used to come home and say to Brynn, I didn't do two jobs. Uh, even though I passed the factory or I passed the school, I didn't do it. I left them till tomorrow. I'm feeling very tired at 47. So I went and uh, the doctor, they said they thought I had a threatening ulcer. And then I um, started losing my appetite and then I started getting pains and they took some biopsies and they said no you're clear 
So they treated me for a threatened ulcer and the pains got worse and worse and eventually I couldn't go to work. And I just wanted to sleep all day then and ask for something to relieve the pain. So eventually they had to take me in and I went in. Is that the time that I recall you going to work in the van when you were working as a heating engineer with a hot water bottle held against your stomach? That's exactly it. Yeah, the, the heats, heat seemed to be the only thing. And uh, when I come home in the evening, I'd have to drink whiskey to see what it sort of eased the pain and keep my back against the radiator and put hot jars to my stomach. The pain was terrible, horrible, unbearable. But um, eventually they did find uh, one of the biopsies showed. And uh, it was, I suppose it was... Um, it was growing fairly fast, and they said, oh, oh, um, we're afraid you have a lot of it, and we're afraid you, you'll have to have an operation, we'll have to remove most of your tummy. At this stage, then, they were able to see it on x-rays as white shadows or something. So they took me in and did a um, huge operation. And then um, they said, we better have you anointed. Oh, yes, this was the, the night of the operation. They asked, would they send a priest in the night? And they said, if he, if he wants to. But um, he's like a, a foul weather friend, not a fair weather friend. Uh, I said, yeah, if you want to, but it's no good me getting religious all of a sudden. No, when I know I'm not going to wake up in the morning. But um, I, I really, I, get, I sort of got a bit of peace when I said I won't wake up in the morning because I'm not going to survive this, what the professor said. He was going to operate on me. And then you say to yourself, well, that's it. And I've had a good life. And um, so be it. Three those now. Blow, blow, blow. Blow, blow, blow. Blow. And one. Hey! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What about happy birthday? You sing it. You sing it. You sing. You sing your granddad. Yeah? And I play. Now, are you ready now? The words. Happy birthday. Happy. Happy birthday, dear. But when I woke, I didn't know what was on because uh, they had oxygen and I could hear the machine running and I couldn't believe I woke up. And then I, I started fighting. I said, well, um, I, I've survived the big heavy operation. So what? So let's try and get better now. And I used to exercise myself and twist my toes and move my arms and... Um, then my lungs collapsed, but sure, I got over that as well. Uh, fought the heart battle and then the chemotherapy, which was terrible in those days. You just kept constantly being sick until the next... You were just beginning to calm down and stop getting sick. And um, your next boat came up again. He went on to chemotherapy, which he got um, every three weeks. It was very severe, very hard. And he used to go to bed a lot. He was in 
very bad form sometimes and very hard to get him to eat anything at all at all. A couple of times I actually fought with him. Um, told him, you know, if you want to curl up and die, so curl up and die, but you have to try. And um, then he lost all his hair. Tell me about that incident when that happened. It happened one day. Um, he went up for a shower and he shouted my name and roared for me and I ran up the stairs and went in, pulled back the shower curtain and all the tiles in the shower were covered in hair. His body was covered in hair. It all came out together in the water when he went into the water and he actually shouted for me because he couldn't see. His eyelashes and hair had gone into his eyes and he was frightened. So we just washed the hair off him and brought him out and it was all gone. It was just all gone. Every bit of hair, lashes, his arms, his eyebrows, his hair on his head, his chest, his legs, everything. He was like a skinned chicken. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was like a plucked chicken. But um, that was it. That was just an incident. It was all part of the chemotherapy, which went on from about April to October of 1986. And... Joyce was getting married in November, but she waited until the last chemotherapy was done before. I think she kind of brought her wedding forward and everything because we really didn't think he'd do at all. What do you mean you didn't think he'd do? I didn't think he'd live. We didn't think he'd live because we hadn't got a very good prognosis from the doctor until the histology report came, for, came, out, came out and said it was a form of Hodgkin's he had had because he'd had it in the lymph glands as well as in the stomach. So they said that their chemotherapy might help. And in actual fact, well, it did. Here we are 20 years on. Will you sing if I play a song? Yeah. Will you sing if I play a song, Jerry? Will you sing if I play a song? Will you sing? Or do you want to play your own music? And three, and of the song. Oh, that's your music now. Listen mm -hmm. to your music. You like that? I do. You like that song, don't you? How did you feel the day? Do you remember the day they gave you the all clear? I do indeed, I couldn't believe it. Uh, Dr. Cotter to men, um, cancer lady, she said to me, you're a miracle man, she said. I can't believe it. I've been seeing you for about six, eight years uh, for scans every six months and we're finished. You're cured completely. We can't find any traces of anything. So you're off. And uh, it was like a new lease of life. I'd say it was like somebody on death's row being told he was pardoned. You couldn't believe it. After the initial euphoria, there were a few little problems, big problems in your life, really, wasn't there, in terms of your relationship with somebody else, and that's alcohol. Oh, yeah. Because you didn't go back to work, and that was very tough for a man like you who'd worked all his life till then. Yeah, I missed, I missed um, 
when I knew I was getting, I was able to manage and I was getting stronger, uh, I miss going to work. I, I wouldn't believe that in a wet Monday morning when I got a call to go drive 200 miles to do a breakdown or something. But um, I did miss it. It was the, the biggest thing of all. I love being at home, I love lifting, but I needed something. And I'm afraid the shed, even though I was doing a regime, I was trying to work. And Bryn called me for lunch, I was trying to make it a day's work. No, it's not the same. And you'd feel useless and that you're not earning money. And um, I did, and I did what um, my local GP told me happens to a lot of people. You get to the stage where um, this isn't much good. Um, I, I'm not really, I, I should be able to go, go back to work and I should be able to do this and do that. And uh, I'm too weak. So what you do is you, I, I took a nightcap. I took a glass of whiskey to make me sleep. Or you wouldn't be tired and if you're very, um, um, well, if you're relaxed most of the day and you're only working when you can, you have nothing physically to tire you out so you don't sleep. The sleep and adjust at night. So I, I took a, a drop to see would it make me sleep, a nightcap, and then the nightcap became a double nightcap. And then before I knew it, I was starting to take a little drop during the day. And eventually, I got heavier and heavier. And um, I believe it happens to an awful lot of people that it gives you this uh, feeling strong and it takes away the boredom. In other words, you're drugging yourself with the alcohol and it becomes a problem then because you're, you're neglecting your food, which I needed very badly. And um, I had another battle to fight, so I knew one day I said, look, I'll have to. I'll have to give this alcohol up because um, you get up in the morning and you're, you're starting off looking for a cure and before you know it, you can't even enjoy a hobby then at that stage. So you, I, was, I, I realized just in time, I think, because I had a few years of that, and um, I realized just in time that it was either it or me, and it was the very same as cancer. You have to fight a battle with that thing. So I said, that's it. Alcohol's out. And what I did is I got, got the calendar, and I marked Monday. I'll have a drink of Tuesday, but none on Monday. And um, I marked that I would have no drink Tuesday. I would postpone it till Wednesday, and I put an X on that. And I did the whole week. Now I said I might as well start again next week and promise myself a drink Friday. Do the whole week and have a drink of Friday. When Friday came, I said, no, I'll make it Monday. And I did that, going along, promising myself I will have one. And eventually it got to a fortnight, and then it got to a month, and... That's how I gave it up, slowly but surely. That wasn't really just an ordinary Monday that you put the X on the calendar, though. It was kind of significant that the first grandchild was born around that time, wasn't it? Yes, I actually had had a large whiskey and I felt a bit well. And the phone rang and I answered it. And it was, I was being told that my first grandchild was born in Dublin. And I said, oh... And I was a bit, a little bit woozy from the, the whiskey, so I said, ah, oh, I should be able to get on a train, even though it was difficult and I was weak, but I should, and go and see him. But um, it's not the cancer or the effects of the, all these huge operations that was stopping me. It was the drink. So I decided there and then, that's it. 
what was in the glass, I threw down the, uh, into the sink and I said, that's it. Um, this is just as bad as cancer. So um, actually it could be worse because nobody has pity on you. They can't reach you. It's up to yourself. So I threw it down the sink and um, that is that is exactly, I know exactly when I gave up the drink then. So the little one is, I suppose she's 18, going on for 18 now. So I, I treated that like I would a cancer. I said, it's either all or nothing. You either go full, full um, battle dress against this thing and fight it or dump on the aid because it's no good saying I'll cut back or I'll cut down. No, not with that. Um, it's the very same as the, as the cancer. You either give in when you're told you have it, sit back and wait to die, or you fight. You pick one up and you either want to play it or you don't want to play it. Um, That's the bold Terry Quill. She's a wealthy lady and she couldn't, she had something wrong and she couldn't, the doctors couldn't fix her. And she said, oh, mama, said she, sure I sure know what ails me and would help with the anxiety that now seems to fill. I'll give over my doctors and medical treatment. I need a good squeeze from the bold Teddy Quill. <laughs> So that's that was the that's all that she wanted to squeeze out of the the bold teddy quill and that's the advice of the maids. That's only out the country, out the road there. So you know, do Helen where my mother's people came from, Castlemack. You were telling some other member of the family. I was talking to him last night about standing in the mirror and looking at the point where the cancer is on your body. Do you recall that? Oh yeah, I, I did that with the stomach cancer. And I looked in the mirror and said, you have cancer and it's going to kill you because it's malignant and it's in your stomach, your spleen, and it's in the glands and all through your body. So I was trying mind over matter. I was saying, it's, you're in there, uh, you're working away, but I, 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 I wanted to know you had the right to live. Um, and I was trying to get my own um, defences going. I kept saying it. Um, you have cancer, but it's not going to kill you. And But you have to look in the mirror and look straight into your own eyes. I know it's a daft thing, it sounds daft, but that's the way I feel, that if you're afraid, I think you start to die. If you're not afraid, you, you're in with a good chance. So I've done the same with this one now. I look in at, well, I'm very thin, but I can nearly see through the, I'm so thin I can nearly see it. And I, I think of it and I visualise this fellow the size of a grape sitting in there, um, one of the bad guys, you know me, and I say, listen, um, you have no right to be there. You're not normal, you're not natural. And um, I just keep thinking of it and saying, shrink, shrink. I'm trying it, so it seemed to work for the other cancers. This photograph that you keep beside your bed, 
Yeah. Can you describe that one for me in detail? I think I can, yeah. He's sitting down and his curly hair is gone. Bald in the middle, plenty of hair at the back and sides. And he just looks fit and well and content and happy. And he's got his sunglasses on. It was a beautiful day and it was a lunch break while he was working. And that's that's about it now, really. Where was that taken? It was taken in Fountainstown. He was putting in heating and it was the other guy took it to give it to me to show how hard Joe worked. <laughs> and there he is sitting in the sun with his pipe as relaxed and as happy and as healthy looking as you could anybody could be. Very handsome and a devilish grin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You have it now to a T. You have. Yeah. But Dad's used to sing so many songs. and um... I remember you were putting us to bed. You used to sing The Blackboard of My Heart. Uh, I picked that up. I'm sure I heard an old um, country western tape or something one time, and that was in it. And I took a fancy to it. When I was young and went to school and they taught me how to write To take a chalk and make a mark and hope it turned out right And that's the way it is with love, what you did to me I wrote it so that you would know I was yours eternally But my tears have washed, I love you From the blackboard of my heart and, and it's, it's too late to clean the slate and make a brand new start. I'm satisfied the way things are, although we're far apart. My tears have washed, I love you from the blackboard of my heart. I have a question for you, and it's something that you mentioned to me at one point before when we were talking, and it is to do with the cause of cancer and I remember one evening sitting down and we were mulling over all this and you said to me that you thought John's death that's my brother and your son that when he died at 17 that you're, you never recovered from that shock and that that might have had a part to play in your cancer do you think that's true? I do indeed. I think it's it's exactly how it happens, I'm sure. Um, they asked me in hospital, one of these psychologists asked me, had you any trauma within the last three or four years? And I said, no, not that I know of. And uh, how are you getting on at home? Uh, how are you getting on and at work? Is there any constant nagging? or anything that worries you every day, or something you hate doing, you have to do every day. And I said, no. And how was the family situation? I said, happy. Uh, never happy in my life. At this stage, you know, they were trying to get an idea of what causes cancer themselves. They were trying to learn. And if she had said, within the last five or six years, I could have told her that um, I was playing Scrabble with John. That's your your brother, Susan. And uh, he'd been with me at work that day and we came home and uh, Brenny um, had gone to hospital to see somebody and she said, your dinner's there for you lads and I'll see you soon. I'm going in to see uh, a friend of ours in the hospital. And we began to play a game of Scrabble after dinner and the phone rang and a friend of John's asked to know could he see him for a few minutes 
And John said, don't cheat, leave the scrabble board as it is. And I'll be back in about a half an hour. Well, when the bell rang, I ran out to let him in because I had been looking up words in the dictionary, I was cheating. Anyway, <laughs> um, I opened the door and there was two policemen there. And that was the news, he had been killed in a, an accident. But I think that that sudden uh, trauma, that sudden shock, really does something to your body and you can't cope. You pretend to the world, I went back to work and I was scared of traffic and I wasn't working properly or anything, but I forced myself. But I had to take his photograph in the front that I could see it all day. Um, an only son, uh, no favouritism, because I loved the four girls uh, equally, but um, we got on great together. Um, even that last day he came to work with me, the day off from college, he wanted to be a vet and he loved birds. I built an aviary for him. But he had a big flight and a, a, a place for his birds and he used to rear them from young. Tell me about Johnny. We had a dog called Whiskey and the dog was bigger than him. He used to go around the yard and the dog dragging him around. But I have a snap of him with a big hammer in his hand, my hammer. And then um, always at things, uh, very inquisitive. But a um, uh, beautiful, beautiful young boy. And uh, I think he would have been um, a nice person had he, had he lived. Where are we going today? Gugan Barra. We go to Gugan. I can't remember Gugan Barra. It's where the tiny little churches and the lake and the swans. You were there when you were small. And do you go down often? Uh, not often, but we do go a few times. I like it. It's one of my favourite places. I love Gugan. Will Dad go out for many trips now, Mum? Trips? Will he go out to many places? Um, not really. We, I do take him for spins. I took him to St John's Well and I took him to St Govnett's Well and I take him for a few spins, but he, he won't get out the car. He can't walk much because of his leg. So, But we're going to go to Foynes next week now to the museum and I'd say he'll drag himself around the, the aeroplanes there now and things. Now, Joe, are you ready? You haven't locked your shed yet. Leave a window open here now because it's so warm. You're not worried about leaving that open? No. Mm. No. No. Are you ready? Do you want that as well? Yeah. The Flying Catalina. That Off was her name. That was just the, the aircraft's name. Okay. Don't forget to lock your shed door, Joe. Picking up um, the thread of cancer through your life, Jer, you got rid of the stomach cancer, the spleen cancer, and you got all that sorted out and recovered yourself, came off the alcohol. And then it reared its head again. Yeah, I was so happy then. And learning to live with my weaknesses, but beginning to travel and 
um, knowing my limitations, and eventually built up enough of work in the shed to make cots and bogies and repair things for people. And I was quite happy until that um, awful news that the other one came. Oh, yeah, I... I um, Sorry, do you want to finish rolling your fag there before we proceed? Get that lit up and you can, we can carry on from there. Well, the last time I went for my scan, which I had every six months, uh, they couldn't believe that I was completely cured. And they said, you're one of the rare ones, completely cured of the, um, the cancer that affected your stomach. And they must have got all of it with the chemotherapy, what they didn't get in the operation. And they said, you're completely cured, um, glandular trouble, everything is, is right. Um, so we probably won't ask you to come back in six months, maybe a year or two. But we're, we're, we're concerned, we're finished with you. And I said, right, we'll have one last blood test. And my local GP took that, sent it in. Nobody worried about ranting. And she rang on a Saturday morning and said, I'm sorry, very good news. There is no old cancer there. But unfortunately, you have prostate cancer because I think on the PSA positive antigens uh, the reading was tripled or maybe quadrupled what it should be so she said I'm afraid we'll do more tests but I'm afraid you now have a new one to deal with and that was cancer number two. Fifteen years after his stomach cancer he got prostate cancer and then Two years after that, again, he got the prostate back. And then last October, which would be in 2005, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. So you see, there's even 12 months nearly gone on since he was diagnosed with the lung cancer. It's just a matter of saying, right, you have to deal with this. Now we've cried, we've wept, and he really does think this one is going to take him, which he probably will. In a couple of years' time, he won't survive like he did after the stomach cancer. But um, deal with it, and we'll try and hang on as long as we can in there. And once his quality of life is good, that's all that counts. And it's not bad. Now, he is limping with his sore leg, and he does cough a lot. But he hasn't got any chest pains, and his tumour after the radiotherapy shrunk 80%, which is good. So that might give him a bit longer. That's all you can do. Deal with it. What else can you do? Do you remember, Mum, before Dad got sick at all? I'd say almost 100% of the time if we went anywhere, he'd be in the driving seat and you'd be in the passenger seat. If Joe was coming in the car, I never drove. I never drove. He did all the driving. He loves driving. He just loved it, so I never did. And then? And then he got sick and I had to start driving him here and there. But then when he started to get a bit better, he took over again. But every time he's sick, I do all the driving. And now with his legs sore, he just can't work the pedals. So I do it all now. I do it all now. 
in terms of managing your pain and medically managing the lung cancer that you have now, you seem to be just managing it yourself here at home. Yeah, well, there's really nothing they can do because uh, it's there. I had radiation and they shrunk it and there's not much more they can do. They can't operate on it. It is in such a bad place and um, that's it. It'll stay there. I just have to wait for it to either stay still. If it stays still, I could live a few years. But if it starts to grow again after the radiation, um, well, that's it. You, you shorten your time then. They would probably operate if I was a younger man. Um, and if I was more fit, in other words, well, I was very fit, but my age as well, you see, not, you can't be that fit. It's 71 years of age or 72. So they said no, the operation be too severe, otherwise we could whip it out. And um, so that wasn't an option. So there's no option. You just sit and wait and see how it develops. Uh, you, you, you really have to be brave and say to yourself, good God, even though my local sheep, he said he's treating a man with the very same again. And he's going into his third year. It's something very similar to mine, which means now I start hoping for three years. <laughs> Everything takes on a different perspective. For you, you can't plan. You can't say, I'll go down and book next year's holiday. Um, let's see, will I change my car in two years, three years' time? What? And all of a sudden you have to say to yourself, that doesn't really matter, does it? And... Um, it was like I picked up something and it showed some utensil we bought for the kitchen and it said three years guarantee and <laughs> it's then small things like that come in, Jade. Oh my God, uh, <laughs> that's going to live longer than I am. Listen. 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 All you hear is the birds usually. Oh, oh, we were here one morning and there was nobody. The mountains there next to us, the lake lapping. And there was one of the swans. There was always two swans lived there for years and years. But there was only one. And it was peaceful. You actually, you could hear the stillness. It was, it was beautiful, wasn't it, Brendan? Yeah. And you don't want your ashes here, Dad? Mum wants hers no, here. No, no, too well, peaceful. Well, only if I get cremated. Too peaceful. You did you see it, Red Strand? I'd be free to roam in and out of the galley head, which is one of the most beautiful sea places in the world, because it has great memories of you when you were small. Joe, your hat isn't on right. And our holidays. It's all higgledy. <laughs> and our holidays. It's still not on it's right. It's worse now. <laughs> so it's not just the beauty of the place. It's also the lovely memories we have of all the years holidays left together. After you. And it was there I told all of you to swim. So. That's right, that's right. Any few bob in there, Brent? No. Yeah, you need it more than I do. You'd want to get buckets of it on top of me, though. Don't put money in the holy well, she'll look. The tenements don't put it in. I better take it out. Whoever put it in. Right. 
Francisco, don't put it in. Will I take it out from Where are you going? I won't walk too far, no lads. No, where do you want to sit here? Yeah, I'll sit there and then I think I'm St. Jeremiah. Yeah? <laughs> I'm holy well, 11. 11? That's the 11th. Or two. You, there's a ring you do, you see. That's the 11th stop, if you like. If you read the sign outside, they'll tell you where each one is. Oh. I'll leave you the keys in case you want to go into the car. Is it up along the course then? No, in around here as well. Oh, in there? Yeah. Oh, I got you. Okay, lads, see you in the morning. See you in a minute. See ya. Yeah. Don't get caught from us, no, Ben, again.